reasons we can't give you the honor and the worship and the glory that is due you. So we need your help to do that. Help us to have a view of you uh, that is inexplainable. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see you for who you truly are. Forgive us for getting used to you. Forgive us for taking uh, you for granted in our lives. Forgive us, Father, for being uh, no longer in awe of you. You are a great God. Jesus, you're a great Savior. And we pray that today you would help us in, in the beginning of this year going forward until we see you face to face. Help us to behold our God the way you deserve to be beheld. To have our attention today, there are a lot of things that could be distracting people in this room this morning. We all have things on our minds that are occurring in our lives, but none more important, Jesus, than uh, what we have to talk about this morning. So bless this time in your word. May Jesus Christ be exalted, and may our hearts be challenged as to what we ought to do uh, until we see you face to face in the day that we get to offer you perfect worship. We can't wait for that day. But until then, Lord, may we do it with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We pray in your name. Amen. On January 7th this year, I spoke to you about when the foundations are destroyed. And I concluded by saying what we need is a right view, a fresh view of God. And so this series this morning, Behold Your God, is the result of my thinking uh, along those lines for the last number of weeks. I love that song that the choir from CBU sang. Uh, that is good worship music. It takes my attention off of what's going on in this world and it puts it where it needs to be. And if my attention will stay on God, and if your attention will stay on God, if we'll work at beholding him, all the things going on around us are going to fall into place. They're going to fall into the right perspective. And so today, and, and going forward, I, I don't anticipate really getting into a lot of expository sermons on Sunday mornings for the next several weeks, although that's our practice here. Uh, Sunday nights or Wednesday nights we might, but these are going to be more topical messages and involving a lot of scripture. Bring your Bible. Have a piece of paper because we'll, I, I will reference uh, scriptures that we don't have time to turn to, and I'll trust that you uh, will write those down and look them up later. When you come to Exodus chapter 33, you have one of the conversations in the Bible, one of many conversations in Scripture that is recorded between God and Moses, that great patriarch that God used to lead the people out of Egypt and bring them to at least the brink of Canaan before Joshua took over leadership and took them in. Exodus 33 is this conversation uh, uh, between them. We won't read the whole chapter, but I would like to read part of it, and that begins at verse number 8. Exodus 33, 8, and it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. 
I blow past that last phrase way too easily. That is an amazing phrase. The Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the door, at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his, in his tent door. And if it wasn't enough that the Lord talked to Moses, look what it says in this next verse. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. I, I look at that verse number 11. It says, he talked to him as a man speaketh unto his friend. What, what wonderful communion that is. The Lord talked with Moses, it says here. Then it says, the Lord talked with him face to face as a man speaketh to his friend. The details of that conversation are start at verse number 12. They go down through verse number uh, 23, the end of the chapter. And in verse number 13 and in verse number 18, keep in mind Moses is talking to God face to face. He's speaking to God as a friend. But in verse number 13... Moses makes a request, now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. If I've found grace in your sight, show me your way. Drop down to verse number 18. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Keep this in mind. Moses is talking with God face to face as a man does his friend. David said in Psalm chapter 63 verse 2, to see his, his heart was to see thy power and thy glory. That word glory is an interesting word. Of course it means brilliance, but part of the Hebrew word that ties into that, it gives the idea or the connotation of heaviness. There's a weight in this, in this Hebrew word, kabod, there's this weight. That word glory means more than just brilliance. It means a heavy brilliance. The glory of God was heavy in this place. This is what Moses requested to see. This is what David requested to see. He's standing there talking to God face to face, but that wasn't enough for Moses. I'm going to speak to you this morning on this thought, the importance of thinking. He's already in God's presence. The Shekinah cloud has descended onto the tabernacle and it's filled the tabernacle and Moses is inside the tabernacle. He's in that first larger of the two rooms. He's not in that little room that's 15 by 15 uh, in the back, that, holy, that most holy place. He's not in there. He's not allowed in there. But he does go into the tabernacle itself. And he's speaking with God face to face. And that wasn't enough. He wanted more. So in verse number 18, he says to God, would you show me your glory? He was already surrounded by the cloud, wasn't he? We read that. But it wasn't enough for him. And that, that leads me to say this to you. There's a lesson here for us. We ought never to come to a point where we have enough of God. Amen. We ought never to come to that point. Get this, he's talking to God. 
Not, not the quiet whisper Holy Spirit talking in your heart like he does. He's verbally and audibly talking to God. And it wasn't enough. We ought never to come to the point where we have enough of God. Back in the late 90s, Steve Green, or late 80s, Steve Green recorded a song, one of my favorite songs that he sang, and it's called, Oh, I Want to Know You More. Deep within my heart, I want to know you. That ought to be the cry of every Christian. Moses says here, show me your glory. David says, my heart is to see your power and your glory. And God's response to Moses in this chapter is, your mortal eyes can't handle it. You, you couldn't handle it. You would be obliterated, Moses, by my glory. That's an incredible thought. It's the heaviness of the glory of God. It's, it's a brilliance that we can't really we can't really fathom. There's an old hymn. We don't, I don't know if we've ever sang it at our church, and we probably should. It was writ written by a man named uh, Walter Smith uh, back in the late 1800s. And the hymn is, when I, say the, when I say the title, you'll recognize the title, but only a few in here are going to know the lyrics, me being, me being not in that group. I recognize the title, but I don't know all the lyrics. The song title is, Immortal, invisible, God only wise. This is one of those hymns that, that I will compare to modern day Christian music and say, boy, that's just like, that's like comparing a Chevette to a Lincoln Town Car. <laughs> Listen to just the opening lines of this, of this uh, hymn by Walter's, Walter Chalmers Smith. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. You know what's interesting in the scripture is that oftentimes when you read of the glory of God, you're not very far from a verse that's going to mention the name of God. Those two things seem to be tied together. Chalmers Smith takes that and he does that in this, in this hymn. Uh, he starts out talking about the, uh, the light inaccessible. He's hid from our eyes. We can't see God. God said to Moses, Moses said, show me thy glory. God says, you couldn't handle that. You'd be obliterated by my glory. But he does partially grant that request, doesn't he? Do you remember? He said, I want you to get over here in this little dip in the rock, this little cleft, I want you to go in here, and I'm going to cover you in that cleft right there, that little cave, Moses. I'm going to shield you there, and I'm going to pass by. And once I pass by, I'll, I'll let you see the afterglow of my glory. I'll show you what you can handle in your mortal body with your mortal mind and brain and your eyes. But my, my brilliance is too great for you. So God did that. God put him in the cleft of the rock. He covered Moses and then God's being passed by. God the Spirit passed by. And the Bible says that his brilliance, his glory was so great in, chapter, in Exodus chapter 34 when he comes down off that mountain, verses 29 and 30. Do you remember this? He comes down off that mountain. He did not know that his face was shining. The people looked at him and it scared them to death. That's the glory of God. Behold your God. Moses said, God, will you show me your glory? 
So this first message this morning, the importance of, of thinking, specifically thinking about and contemplating on your God. Now, one thing I'll, I'll say this to you is, is, as 21st century Christians, we don't like quiet and we don't like times of contemplation and thinking. We don't do that. We like noise and we like busyness. We wear busyness like a badge of honor in the 21st century America. How are you doing? Oh, I'm just busy. I'm just staying at it. And we say that like they should be impressed with how busy we are. We'll get on Facebook and we'll describe everything we did during the day. Got up this morning, did this, had devotions, did this, washed laundry, washed the car, built the house, you know, whatever we did. We list everything we did today because we want people to know we've been busy, we've been productive. God says, be still. Just stop. And so this morning, not a very exciting title, is it? Thinking, the importance of thinking. But I want to challenge you, church, and I'm challenging, I'm challenging myself to grow in this as well. There ought to be a time, at least once a day, when you and I stop, and it's quiet. We're not with our spouse. We're not with our kids or grandkids. We don't have the Internet on. We're not listening to a TV preacher. We're just stopping and it's us, and it's God, and it's his word. The importance of thinking. Now, for some of us, that's going to be a challenge because we don't practice that. So I want to, I want to share with you today uh, three or four things about beholding God and all of these related to thinking. I want you to think on this. This is our introductory message. And then we're going to start talking about our God. Today, it's about you thinking about him. As we go forward, we're going to talk about some of God's attributes and how we meditate on those. So let's start with the first thing here this morning, illustrations in the Bible of beholding God. Illustrations of beholding God. Now let me say right up front, we're not going to have the experience of the people that I'm about to talk about because God today does not manifest himself physically as he did, for example, like with Moses or with the apostles on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't see Jesus face to face. We don't audibly hear the voice of God today. We have the voice of God. It's just been written down for us. But, but beholding our God has to do with our thinking on him today and our contemplation of him. So let's look at some illustrations. And these are some, just some notables in the Bible. Not all of them. We don't have time for that today. But face to face encounters with God and what I like about these encounters is they, they weren't soon forgotten. They were life-changing. Let's turn to one that we're really familiar with in Isaiah chapter 6. And let's talk first of all about Isaiah. You know this verse. It's a wonderful phrase. When you read Isaiah chapter 5, uh, what, what happens in chapter 5 is the woes are described of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah and all that they're going through. And Judah does have a godly king at the time. His name is King Uzziah. Good king, didn't finish well, but he was a good king. By and large, he, he followed God. He wasn't an idolater. And, and, and you find out the bad things going on in, in chapter 5 of Isaiah. And then in chapter 6, well, let's just read it. Let, let's just read the first four verses of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple 
Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. That's an incredible vision that Isaiah had. He saw it the year that Uzziah died. Things are going bad already in the nation of Israel. They're, they're struggling with a lot of things uh, and Judah, not just Israel, the northern kingdom, but also the southern kingdom of Judah. Things are going bad, and then the godly king dies, and people are wondering what's going on, but the Bible says when he died, Isaiah saw the, he, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He gets this fresh view of God. Let me say this. It's not that Uzziah was a bad king. It wasn't until he was gone, though, that Isaiah put his focus where it ought to be. When he died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. May I stop here and, and, and encourage you to do this? Pray that God will do this for you personally in this series. Pray he'll do it for your pastor. That whatever is hindering my sight of God, my perspective of who God is and what God wants to do, Whatever is hindering your perspective of God, whatever is keeping God small in your mind, let's pray that it disappears. And you and I, like Isaiah, can, can see the Lord high and lifted up like we should. He's a great illustration here of beholding God. He said, I saw the Lord. Let's go to another Old Testament example. And, and for that one, you can, you can uh, go back to Exodus chapter 33. This is, uh, this is this man, Joshua. Joshua is one of my favorite Old Testament heroes. You first met him in Exodus chapter number 17. That's the battle of Amalek. That may not mean anything to you but until you remember that's the battle where Aaron and Hur held up the arms of Moses. Remember that? Joshua was down in the valley and he's fighting Amalek. That's the first time in chapter 17 that we meet Joshua. In that chapter... Uh, in fact, let me just, I'll just read this verse to you because there's a, there's a little bit of a hint dropped in Exodus 17 about who Joshua is going to become. They're having, this, they're having this battle, and in Exodus chapter 17 and verse number 14, uh, they've whipped the Amalekites. That battle's over. And, and it says, the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. Write about this, write about this battle in a book. Write this for a memorial in the book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. That's interesting. Joshua's there. May I ask you a question? I don't know if any of you are combat veterans. I don't know if you've ever stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the enemy and duked it out. But do you think you'd forget that? And yet the Lord says to Moses... This battle right here, write this down in a book of remembrance and tell the story to Joshua. God was saying, I don't want Joshua to forget this day. That's the first time, Exodus 17, that we met Joshua. And there in chapter 14, you get a hint. Okay, well, why is it important that Joshua know this? The next time he's mentioned is here in Exodus chapter 33. Joshua hadn't been heard of since Exodus 17. But he shows up again here in, 
in Exodus chapter 33. Moses took it as his personal responsibility to show God to Joshua and to lead him into experiences with God. Did you notice that did you notice that when we were reading Exodus 33, Moses left the tabernacle in verse number 11? Did you note that last phrase? He turned again, the Bible says, went into the camp, Moses did. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Pause there. He just stayed there in God's presence. Here's another illustration of beholding God. Moses was done. Joshua wasn't. Moses was leading two and a half or three million people through, uh, through the wilderness. That wasn't Joshua's responsibility. He was going to take the time that he had, whatever time God gave to him, he was going to take time and behold his God. He stayed there at that tabernacle. Moses led Joshua. Up until, up until verse number 11 in Exodus 33, you think it's only you think it's only God and Moses at the tabernacle. It's not. Moses took it at his responsibility to lead Joshua toward Jehovah. That leaves me with, with this thought for you. The greatest effect you will have on others will be through your walk with God. Joshua tagged along with the right guy. Moses was a man who talked to God face to face as a friend as, as a man speaketh to his friend, and Joshua hitched his wagon to Moses. The greatest effect you're going to have on other people will be dependent on your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. As you behold God, as I behold God, we will impact others. Not that that's our intent. Our intent is to worship. Our intent is to have the right view of God. But the result will be People will sit up and take notice. Dr. Manley will tell you that. I, I so appreciate Doc's testimony when he talks about the, the people that he worked with over in Memphis, that he noticed something in his fellow doctor's lives. He noticed something in them that he didn't have and that was different. They weren't trying to do that. That's just what happens. It makes us different. There was, there was Isaiah who saw God, and then there's... Joshua, who saw God, you want to, if, if you want to be something for God, and Joshua certainly was, you've got to get to know him. You've got to get to know God. Let's, let's, look, at a, let's look at a New Testament illustration now in Mary and Martha and the bad example of what can go on here, a bad illustration of what can happen. Would you turn over to Luke chapter 10? I know you're turning to a lot of scriptures more than we usually do in our, our messages, but this is good for us because there's a consistency in the scripture here. Luke chapter number 10, and you're familiar with this story too, verse number 38 to the end of the chapter. There it says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and he entered into a certain, uh, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him, came to Jesus, and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? 
Bid her therefore that she come help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. That word needful, primary, of utmost importance. It's not saying there's nothing else. It's saying, but one thing is primary. It's needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Martha and Mary have Jesus as a guest in their home. You've heard this before. I'm not rehearsing anything to you. You've not heard. Mary's at Jesus' feet. Martha's doing all the work in the kitchen. The Bible uses an interesting word there. It's the word cumbered. That Greek word, you know what that Greek word literally means? Distracted. That is our English word, distracted. She was cumbered. It doesn't mean she was overworked. It, it means she was distracted with all the serving going on. The point is this. It's hard to behold God in a busy world. It's hard to, it's hard to do that. The busyness that often marks us makes it impossible to behold God in a matter in which he deserves to be beheld. It makes it impossible for me to meditate on God's goodness. I can scratch surface things. God's given us good health. God's provided for our needs. And those are blessings. Those are great blessings. But what if I took 30 minutes? What if you took 30 minutes by yourself and all you did during that 30 minutes was, was contemplate the goodness of God. Not anything else. Just the goodness of God toward you. Just 30 minutes. You'd do a lot more than scratch the surface. I would too. Everything I'm preaching to you this morning, I've been preaching to myself all week. My shins, if I raise my pants, my shins are black and blue from me just kicking myself this week. I need more time. And I imagine you may need more time to think about God. Mary chose that good part. Martha was distracted with a bunch of serving. Now here's the kicker. Here's the kicker in this. Martha was serving Christ as a guest in her home and distracted. She was doing something good. If I, if I have you over to our house, Terry's going to be a good hostess to you. If you have me over to your house, I assume you're going to be a good host and hostess to, uh, to me and my family. Martha brought Jesus into her home. Mary lives there too. He's a guest in their house. He's Jesus. Martha and Mary knew he was the son of God. She's going to take care of him. Dinner's going to be good. We're bringing out the, we're bringing out the china that the kids don't get to touch. He's, she's going to be a good hostess to Jesus. And she was distracted by her service to the Lord away from her worship of the Lord. She was doing something good. You know how easy it is for a pastor to get distracted in the work of the Lord from worship? You ought to pray for your pastor. Mary is sitting here next to, Mary's right next to Martha in this story. And you, it's a wonderful contrast. Martha's doing something good. She's doing something right. But Jesus said there's only one thing. It's needful, primary, of utmost importance here. That's what Mary's chosen. 
Behold your God. It doesn't matter. I had to write some of these things down because I don't have a good memory. It doesn't matter what we do for God if we're not beholding him and contemplating him and meditating on him. Doesn't matter. Church, take time. Take time to, to meditate on the goodness and the greatness of God. Who he is and what he's done. What he wants to do. How sad for Christians who get to heaven, yet know little of the God who saved them. You know how many Christians are in this world genuinely saved? They're on their way to heaven, guaranteed eternal life, and they do not know God very well at all. They just don't know him. They don't know how he thinks. And I know his ways and his thoughts are higher than mine. I know, I know that. But you and I ought to be familiar with how God thinks. We ought to be familiar with his ways. How many times does David in the book of Psalms request, God, show me your ways. So it is knowable, the, the, the way of God, the thoughts of God, they are knowable. How many Christians are going to get to heaven and when they see the one who saved them, when they see the one that they talked about, but they won't know him that well. And the first million or two years in heaven, they're going to have to get to know God. I would, I would challenge myself and challenge you today, start getting to know God now. Amen. Know him. Not about him. Know him. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. There's never been a cleansing of sin in you. Then you need to get to know God in salvation. That's the primary way you can know him. Now, you can know about him in creation. You can know there is a God. But to know him intimately, first you have to know him in salvation. To be saved, you, you, you have to do that. Scripture says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's the only one. You're not saved. You need to get to know God and behold him first in salvation. For the Christian, once you know God... You and I ought to be involved in a deepening knowledge of God all of the time. This ought to be an ongoing process. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him. And that is an ongoing process of learning. We talk about lifelong education in the business world. That as long as you work at your job, you ought to be, you ought to be growing and learning. That's nothing as important as as a Christian growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, deepening your knowledge of God. Well, that's the illustrations from Old and New Testament of illustrating God, uh, of uh, beholding God. Let's talk for a moment, can we, about motivation for beholding God. Motivation for beholding Him. Why should we behold God? Pastor, why this series? Why are you challenging us to contemplate on God? What's the motivation here? Before he went far too ecumenical, J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful book called Knowing God. And he gave one reason for it. This is what J.I. Packer wrote in his book. Christian minds have, have been conformed to the modern spirit. That spirit, listen to this, that spirit, that modern spirit, spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room only for small thoughts of God. That's why you ought to know God, because this world's not going to help you do it. 
A.W. Tozier said, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This the church has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. We've given up our lofty view of God. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train, his glory filled the temple. We've given that up in modern-day Christianity. We've become very comfortable with God. We must see God for who he is because a weak view of God produces weak saints of God. God's not little, but that's how we approach him most of the time. We'll say things like, well, you can't fit God in a box, but we do. You can't have a small view of God. This is the God who said words and the universe that we still don't know how big instantly was created. He's a big God. We need to regain that aweness of him. I heard a preacher say one time he has taken the word awesome out of his vocabulary unless he is describing God. We, we've lost our awe of God. What ought to motivate us? What, what motivates us to behold God? What motivates us is that we've lost, we've lost the awe of him. We've lost the wonder of God. We have allowed so many things in our lives that leave us little time to wait on God, to meditate on his greatness or his goodness or his grace or his faithfulness. We've lost our sense of awe when it comes to him. We are not struck speechless. When Moses came into the tabernacle and God's glory filled the place, the Bible says he fell down on his face and didn't say anything. We've lost that. We've lost our, our speechlessness. Is that a word? Dr. Manley was making up words up here last week. He said, I'm making up another word. So if he can do it, I'm going to do that. I don't know if speechlessness is a word or not, but we've lost that when it comes to God. When God does something in us or for us or even through us sometimes, and we just, we just don't know what to say, we've, we've lost that. That's why we should contemplate God. That's why we, we should behold him. So let me ask you this question. What comes to our mind, or this is a statement rather, what comes to our mind when we think of God may be the most important thing about us? Let's just take a moment. All right? What comes to our mind when we think of God may be the most important thing about us. The reason is what you think of God impacts everything else you do and every relationship you have in this life. What do you think of God this morning? How do you see him? <clears throat> what comes to mind when you think of God? I, I say that and I ask that question because no nation, no religion, and no individual rises above their view of their God. 
May I give you a biblical illustration of that statement? Let me make it again, and then let's, let's look at a biblical illustration. The statement is this. No religion, nation, or person ever rises above their view of their God. The Bible shows us this in the, in the, in the topic of idolatry. Whether you're talking Baal in the Old Testament or the goddess Diana in the New Testament, that was, remember Diana had that magnificent temple in the city of Ephesus, whether it's Baal in the Old Testament or Diana in the New Testament, these gods that they had were often full of perversion and debauchery. They were sexually strained. They were immoral and ungodly. These gods were. They were often gods of, of fertility. And so to worship these gods of fertility, the worshipers would participate in temple prostitution thinking that what they were doing was pleasing their gods. And the gods in turn would bless their crops or bless them with children or bless their livestock. They were committing the acts that they saw their gods doing. Baal was an immoral, perverse god. Diana, a, an immoral, perverse goddess in their personal realm. And so their worshipers became what their gods were. Here's the point. Their view of their god impacted their behavior. That was true in idolatry, and that's true in the worship of Jehovah. And if you and I would see and worship God the way he deserves, our lives would look different. Why, why did those people in Ephesus, why were they such, such immoral people? Why were they so sexually perverse? Because that's how their God lived. Those that worship Baal, why, why did they behave the way they did? Because that's how Baal behaved. No nation, no religion, no individual rises above the view that they have of their God. It's true in idolatry. It's true in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you and I would worship him the way we should, our lives would be changed. Our thinking of God, our thinking about him greatly impacts our life. In fact, the greatest thought, one, one writer said this, the greatest thought a human mind can have and occupy itself with is the contemplation of God. You can't do anything better with your brain than to stop, nor can I, than to stop and think on God. That's a big statement. I didn't say that. I'm not smart enough to make that statement. So I appreciate men and women who are. It's the greatest thing you can do with your mind is to let it be occupied, filled with thoughts on God. So listen to what David said. In Psalm 48, verse 9, we have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. Luke 10, 27. Do you remember what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. That's the greatest commandment. Is to allow your mind to be occupied with God. Don't, don't miss this. I know this isn't hellfire and damnation. 
I know this isn't David killing Goliath, but this is what we are called to do, to let our minds be filled with the great God we serve. We're going to be studying theology in these upcoming weeks. Don't be scared by that. We're not talking about dry theology. Uh, Theology is two words, science of and God. The knowledge of and God. We're talking about the knowledge of God coming up. Why contemplate God? Well, that's the question we're answering. The motivations for this. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. The verse finishes up like this. The people that do know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. That's an interesting, that's an interesting phrase. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. What does that mean? It's talking about accomplishing something for God. When you and I leave this earth, whenever that may be, we want to leave this earth having accomplished something for God and for his glory. Doesn't matter if your name's on a building. Doesn't matter if you left a million dollars to every one of your kids. What matters is what did I do for God and for his glory while on this earth? Charles Haddon Spurgeon was not only an example of one who beheld God and who accomplished great things, but I want to read, and this is rather a lengthy excerpt, from a message that he preached on why we are to meditate on and contemplate on God. Spurgeon preached a message on January 7, 1855, at the New Park Street Chapel there in London, England. The the, The sermon title that day was the immutability of God. The immutability of God. And this is is a rather lengthy, it's a rather lengthy excerpt of the sermon. So follow along if you would. I'll, I'll try to read clearly. Why should we contemplate God? The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I'm wise. But when we come to this master science, the contemplation of God, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths, that our eagle eye cannot see its heights, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts on God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the narrow glow. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified, the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of God. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing upon the Father, there is a quiet for every grief. In the influence of the Holy Ghost, 
there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your care? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak the peace of uh, the winds of peace of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God, and it is to which I invite you to study this morning. Spurgeon was 20 years old when he preached that message. There's a man who spent his life beholding his God. 20 years old. Does, does he answer the question why we should think on God? He says not only does it humble our mind, but it also improves our minds. It binds our wounds. It comforts our hearts. It heals our soul. Thinking on God and beholding him will cause us to say like Isaiah did. The same Isaiah who said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Just a few verses later, he says this, woe is me for I am undone. He saw God for who he really was and all of a sudden he saw himself. As he truly was. Peter did the same thing in the New Testament. Peter sees Jesus do this incredible mir uh, miracle. And it's an, an amazing thing that goes on. And Peter falls down at his feet. And Peter says this. Lord depart from me for I am a sinful man. When we get a right view of God church. It will humble us. It will knock us off our high horse. We're not that much. We're We're dirt. You can't be too exalted if you're dirt. I don't care how much money a guy has or how smart he is. If he has a four-digit IQ, when they put him in a casket and they put me in a casket, we're going back to the same dirt. So what makes, what makes the difference? What makes the difference is my contemplation, my thoughts about God. Why should I, why should I, why, why should I contemplate God? What's the motivation for that? You... You need to have your mind humbled and you need to have your mind expanded. You need to have your wounds bound, your griefs consoled. All of this is found in contemplating, in contemplating God. Last thing, the instruction for beholding God. How do we do this? Pastor, that all sounds wonderful. Don't you get fired up? You get fired up about thinking about God and his greatness and you watch a hundred young people sing, Behold your God seated on his throne. And you go, boy, this is great. How do I do that? Let's talk about instruction for beholding God. First, turn your attention to his word. This is not hard. There's no secret here. Turn your attention to the word of God. To behold God is to do something that few believers do today. And that is the lost art of meditating on scripture. The Bible is not so concerned that you read it as it is that you and I study it and we meditate on it. This, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, the Bible says. It calls us to itself, taking time not just to read the scripture. I can, look, I can read a science journal 
but I'm going to have to look up three-quarters of the words in there in my Webster's Dictionary because I don't have a clue about that. I can't just read it and get blessed from it and get knowledge from it. I have to study that journal. I have to know what those words mean. Why would we not do that with the Word of God? Turn your attention to the Word of God. What does it mean? What does it require of me? How does it address the need of my soul? How does it impact my living? What does it say about my family? What does it say about my possession? It takes, it takes time to go through a passage of scripture. Slow down. Meditate. Turn your attention to the word of God. This is the written revelation of God. It's the revelation. We say scriptures. Uh, we say scripture is, is God's revelation. What does that word mean? The revealing of. It's God's revealing. How can I behold God? I turn my attention to his word. A more sure word, Peter, Peter called it. That's how you behold your God. One writer said, one author said that the, the, the Bible is a photograph of the Almighty. It is a portrait of his character and his ways, his doings, his plans, his attributes, and his unlimited grace. Turn your attention, turn your focus to the word of God. How can you behold God in your day-to-day -day living? Turn your attention to the word of God. Second, turn your attention to the son of God. Turn your attention to his son. As, as we close this morning, I'd like us to read together a passage of scripture. This will be the last passage of scripture I ask you to I ask you to read this morning, but I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter number one. This will serve as the end of our introduction to the weeks that lie ahead. This passage we're going to read reveals the primary and most important way that you and I can behold your God. Yes, turn your attention to the scripture, read the Bible, but turn your attention to the Son of God. Would you stand with me? And we're going to read together out loud Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Join with me in reading, would you? God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You want to see God this morning? Turn your attention to Jesus Christ. He is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of God's person. Turn your attention to Jesus Christ. You want to behold God? Then listen to what God says. Pay attention to my son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. To the unsaved this morning, you need to behold him in salvation. To those of you who are believers, you need to ask yourself this morning, what do I see when I, see God, when I think of God? 
What's my, how do I see God? When I think of God, does he, does he drive me to my knees? No vision of Jesus. When, when Jesus revealed himself on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember the reaction of the three apostles that were there? They fell down on their face before him. When's the last time that in your personal devotion, church, you were so weighted down with the heavy glory of God that you had no choice but to go to your knees? You may have been sitting in, your, in a chair, sitting in your, in your couch or in your rocket chair, whatever you sit on when you have devotions. When's the last time that your worship it was so heavy, the presence of God was so heavy that you ended up on your knees, your face before him. You say, Pastor, that's just, that's Old Testament. That's not. It's the presence of God. His glory hasn't changed. That Hebrew word, kabod, it's still heavy. His glory is still heavy. His presence is still weighted. God wants to save you this morning if you're not saved. And I'm assuming most people in here, if not all, are. God wants an incredible relationship and communion with you and me. Moses wasn't special. Did you know that? And God spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And God wants to do that with you. He does that through his word. He does that through his son. Would you, would you pray? And ask God that, in, and, and this is for our church family. I, I'm so glad we have visitors here this morning, especially on a day like today, for our church family. Would you pray that in the upcoming weeks, God would do something in us? Refresh, refresh that view of him. Renew it in our hearts so that it changes what we do and how we live and, and what's important to us. Let those things fade away that we've grasped so tightly that do not matter. And let's just let God be God to us. Let's pray. Lord, you're a merciful and gracious and long-suffering and good and faithful God. Can't describe you. You're beyond that description. And Lord, I know there are probably things that I should have said this morning and missed them. But I pray that your word is doing its work in our hearts. Thank you for revealing yourself in, in your word and, and in your son. Thank you for calling us to contemplate on you so we know where to put our effort. Help us to look on your son, the only one in whom you are well pleased, and help us to stand in awe of you again. Forgive me for letting the world and the things in the world grab my attention. Forgive me for letting circumstances distract me from what's more important. I pray, God, you'd forgive me from getting busy in your work and failing in my worship. I pray for those that might be with us today that don't know you as Savior. And Lord, I, I don't know that this message would be called a salvation message, but... The beautiful thing about your Holy Spirit is you can do with your word whatever you please. So if one is here today without Jesus Christ, would you save them? And if a Christian is here today in need of a fresh view of their God, would you do that for us? Give us that desire. Help us to take time to slow down 
to see you as you are and to allow you to make us more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the people we naturally are. Do your work today, I pray in your name. Amen. Would you hold your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a few moments? I'll give you an opportunity this morning to respond. And I know the message has been a little longer today. It's certainly been different. But I I feel in my heart, church, this is the direction God would have me to communicate with you for the next few weeks. And I'd like to invite you today to do what God would have you to do.